Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to the book of Nehemiah and locate chapter 8. This is week number two of our mini-series. Series is called A Primer on Worship. Uh, some people say primer, some people say primer. You can debate me on that. It's just really the difference between American and British English. We're going with primer. Uh, just to give you an idea of the series, uh, because we're really just getting back into gathering in person again as a church, I thought it would be helpful for us to revisit the basics of why we do what we do when we gather as a church. So last week we started with kind of the fundamental question. That question being, how is it that sinful people can draw near to a holy God in worship? This week I entitled the message, God's Word and God's People. And we're going to look at the role that the Bible plays in our lives as the gathered people of God. Now, you have no doubt, over the years, heard lots of messages about the Bible and the individual Christian. That is, that you ought to read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, and obey it. All of that is true. The focus today is a little bit different than that. The focus today is on how the Bible impacts or shapes us as the gathered people of God, his church. And I'll just tell you that the impetus for this sermon came from a couple of different sources. Uh, We just finished a series in the book of Daniel as a church. The book of Daniel helps us understand what happened during the period of Israel's exile while they were in Babylon for 70 years. And the book of Daniel takes us all the way up to the point and actually past the point where Cyrus, the king of Persia, issues a decree that the Israelites could return to their homeland. They could rebuild their cities. They could rebuild their temple. And while we were in the book of Daniel, I kind of got interested in the book of Nehemiah a little bit because the book of Nehemiah is sort of what happens when they go back to Israel. It's kind of a meanwhile back at the ranch sort of thing in connection with Daniel. But there was actually another source of inspiration that kind of jumped to my mind uh, some time ago, maybe two months ago now, I came across a post about the Netflix miniseries, The Queen's Gambit. Uh, the Queen Gambit, Queen's Gambit follows the story of Elizabeth Harmon. She was an orphan who was taught the game of chess by the orphanage's custodian. She later desires to become the world's greatest chess player, but she has to overcome a host of emotional problems, addiction to various substances, and all of that. But the show became the most popular show in Netflix's history. So I haven't actually seen it, to be honest with you, but what I found fascinating about it is just sort of the stats around it, called the Netflix effect. The Queen's Gambit debuted in October of 2020. It's since been watched by more than 62 million households. Since it debuted, inquiries about chess sets are up 250% on eBay Google searches for how to play chess have hit an all-time high. The original novel, The Queen's Gambit, became a New York Times bestseller 37 years after its original release. And the number of people playing chess on chess.com has multiplied by five. And as I thought about that, it made me reflect on the formative power of our habits You start watching a show about chess, and before you know it, you're interested in playing the game, learning how to play it, maybe playing it with others, participating in it in some way. 
And I entitled this message, God's Word and God's People, because I think the same thing is true as it relates to our relationship with God's Word. As we begin to hear it, read it, interact with it, study it together with others, talk about it in our conversations, it starts to have a formative effect on us. It starts to shape us. And so we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12, and I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And this is what it says. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him, it's the fun part, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah. On his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat portions and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You can be seated. Well, we actually learn a great deal about God's word and God's people in this passage. And I'm going to consider, I want us to consider these discoveries under three main headings this morning. The first thing we learn about is the unifying power of God's word. Verse 1 begins by saying that all the people gathered as one man. Now, there are several things that we ought to understand about that phrase. Maybe before we even do that, we just kind of need to understand the significance of it in its context. Now, we are parachuting into Nehemiah chapter 8. But if we had been reading through the book of Nehemiah in its entirety, we would have seen the way chapter 7 ends. And chapter 7 ends like this. It says... So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So the Israelites have come back to Israel. 
They've scattered to their individual towns. They've started to rebuild their houses and all of that. But now they all come back together. And the thing that brings them all together is to hear the word of God read and taught. It's the unifying power of it. And it says all the people gathered as one man. So some things to understand about that phrase. Maybe the first thing is just that there were a lot of people that day gathered as one man. So the reference to all the people is a reference to everyone who had returned from exile. And we know elsewhere, for from elsewhere in the book of Nehemiah, that this was about 50,000 people. So that's the scene on this day. Ezra is standing on a wooden platform. There are 50,000 people before him gathered to hear the word of God read and taught. Now, it's been a long time since we've been able to do it, but you have no doubt had an experience where you're in a large crowd, but you are, in a sense, gathered as one man. I mean, maybe it's at a concert, you know, and when the band kind of stops playing their instruments, the lead singer holds out his microphone for the crowd to sing the lyrics in unison as one man, in a sense, or maybe at a sporting event. And everyone rises to sing the national anthem in unison as one man, or maybe even just at that sporting event when the home team scores, right? Like if you went to a Canucks game and they finally scored a goal, everyone would kind of stand in unison and cheer together. Something like that. It's possible to be in a large group and yet be united as one man, united as one. But it's not just that it was a large crowd, it was also a mixed crowd. Listen again to verse 2 says, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. So those who think that the Old Testament represents some kind of patriarchal society where women were discouraged from learning haven't read it. Now, this is not to say there's not a place for separate learning opportunities for men and women. Women, if we were to keep reading in Nehemiah, in the very next verse, verse 13, we would discover that on the second day, the heads of the household and that the men came back for further instruction by Ezra the priest and the others. So there is an important place for things like our uh, men's and women's Bible studies. But when we gather as a church, we gather together. Every one of us, Regardless of our gender, our age, our status in life, our ethnicity, any of those things, we all stand equally under the authority of God's word. That's what it means to gather as one. But verse 2 also says that that group was made up of men, women, and all who could understand. So who is that? Well, that's a reference to the children of the men and women. There's no specific age attached to this, but I would say that we tend to underestimate how much children can understand. So our kids now range in age from 21 to 14, but we have always brought them with us to the worship gathering. Now, if it, when they were younger, if you were to look on, it, it might have looked like you know they were more occupied with doodling or coloring or making animals out of those cardboard sleeves on our coffee cups, right? But you'd be surprised how much they can understand when they're part of what takes place in here. 
I remember we were on vacation one time and we visited a church and when we got to the doors, they sort of stopped us and our kids were younger at the time. And they said, look, you know what? We don't actually allow anyone in here in the sanctuary under the age of 13. And so there was a children's worker there and she was, you know, doing her best to coax our kids to go with her to kids ministry, right? And she was, she was saying, oh, look, we're going to have so much fun over there. Besides, you don't want to go to big people's church. It's so boring. What a great message, right? Church is so boring. Now, look, it is boring at times, right? I mean, I'm not going to start juggling flaming knives or anything while we're in here on a Sunday. Probably not. But I think sometimes in our efforts to entertain kids, we deprive them of the opportunity to hear God's word and understand God's word. Now, I love the fact that there are some super creative people who've developed tools and curriculum that's specifically designed to help kids better understand the Bible. Right? We, we, we make use of that stuff here. But sometimes what happens is that kids never get to have an unfiltered experience with the Bible. And by the time they're teenagers, lots of youth groups simply seek to entertain with games and all sorts of craziness rather than feeding them the meat of God's word. I mean, who wants to learn doctrine and theology anyway? So in high school, they're starting to learn physics and calculus and more complicated concepts. And we're thinking, oh, we don't want to teach them, you know, like the doctrine of the Trinity or the sovereignty of God. Let's just kind of dumb it down for them. I remember hearing Kent Hughes speak at a Bible conference one time, and he said that sometimes we affirm the idea of the Bible's inerrancy, that it is without error, but sometimes what we fail to do is to affirm the Bible's sufficiency, right? So in theory, we say, yes, it's true, but in practice, we say, we're not sure we think it's enough. And I would just say to you that I think the Bible is enough. There's tremendous power in reading it. I love these words that Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, when he said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, Timothy was familiar with scripture from childhood, from infancy, as some translations put it. And Paul says that it was the scriptures that would make him wise for salvation in Christ. So when we come together as a church, we come together as one man, every one of us, under the authority of God's word. Second thing we discover here is the proper approach to God's word. And this is something you actually see on display all through this passage. So listen to verse 1 again. That verse says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Part of what I find interesting about verse 1 is what the people didn't say. I mean, they've just come back from their 70 years of exile. They're back in Israel now. And what they don't say to Ezra is, hey, Ezra, can you give us a good pep talk? Ezra, you know what would be really helpful? Can you give us your best self-help advice? Ezra, what would be great right now with 50,000 of us here is for you to tell us your best stories. 
what they say to Ezra is, Ezra, read the book of the law to us. That's what we want. Now, this sounds really simple, I know, but there's something powerful about reading God's word or hearing it read in our presence. Here's something else Paul said to Timothy. He said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So we would not diminish the importance of preaching and teaching, teaching, exhortation, those things. But we shouldn't neglect the public reading of Scripture. Now, we've actually had a couple opportunities in the past year as a church to demonstrate that. So some of you might remember last summer we were in the book of Genesis. We came to chapter 24 in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 24 is 67 verses long, but it's sort of one narrative unit, one story. So we tackled it all together and we read through all 67 verses. A few weeks back, we were in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 is 75 verses long, but it's kind of all one unit. We tackled it all together. So we read through all 75 verses. Now, I'm not looking for you to give me a gold star or anything. I'm just saying that what I hope is that we model what we say we believe. And part of what we believe is that there's power in reading the word of God. But there's more than that, though, to the proper way to approach God's word. Listen now to verse 3. In verse 3, it says, And he read from it, that's from the book of the law, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There are a couple of things that jump out from that verse. One is just to notice that they were willing to listen to the word being read and taught from early morning until midday. Now, I'm not going to advocate that we ought to have a six-hour worship gathering. But I think this does say to us that we shouldn't be so quick to just kind of rush through time spent in God's word as a church. Oh, when is this going to be over? The second half of that verse then says, and the people, as Ezra read, scrolled through their social media feed while Ezra rambled on and on. It's not what it says, right? It says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So what does that look like? Now, I would be the first to admit that it is both easy and tempting to be distracted during the sermon. And I'm pretty sure that the last 15 months or so where most of you have watched on a screen, it's been even more difficult. I spent a good chunk of my week this past week in Abbotsford assessing a group of potential church planters. And part of that assessment is that each of the candidates has to deliver a 10-minute sermon. Now, in one sense, I'm there to evaluate and critique and kind of say, you know, does this person sort of have what it takes to communicate the Bible in a clear fashion before others. But before each of those sermons, I had stopped and prayed that we as assessors, even in the midst of evaluating, would not miss what God might want to say to us through his word. And I actually think that practice is, is really helpful in general. On the weeks that I'm not preaching, I try to make my ears attentive to what is being said by whoever is saying it. Again, it's really easy just to get distracted. And sometimes it's the little things we do that will help us 
be attentive to God's word. It might be putting your phone away so that it's out of arm's reach. I'll tell you that I worked one of the cameras for our live stream on a couple of occasions, on a couple Sundays where I wasn't preaching. Now, you probably noticed, right? You, the, the, those mornings where you were sitting at home saying, man, the camera work is phenomenal this morning. Like, so good. Those were the mornings I was up there, but the truth is I barely heard anything that was said. I mean, I was distracted, taken up with my job. So we want to just make our ears attentive. I think one way to make your ears attentive might be as simple as making a commitment to bring your Bible to church with you and follow along as the scriptures are read or as you know, when it says, look at verse 2, you look at verse 2, those sorts of things. Now, I'm not saying this to, because you don't. I, one of the things I really love about our church is the fact that the way you give attention to God's word. But there's little habits we can do to honor it. A couple other things people do here to demonstrate the way they approached God's word. The beginning of verse 4 says this, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Now, they built a platform so that everyone could hear what Ezra was saying. I don't want to make more of this than is there. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it would have served a practical purpose. There's 50,000 of them. They don't have a system of amplification. So maybe this helped them hear better, but they, they were deliberate about it. But there might actually even be more to it than that in what it signaled, what's important. I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the outcomes of the Reformation was the movement of the pulpit back to the center of the church. See, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the liturgical elements dominated their services. The reading and the preaching of God's word came to occupy a secondary place, a minor played a minor role in their gatherings. The reformers moved the pulpit to to the center, not to elevate man, but so that the people understood that worship was not just about performing rituals, but about hearing from God, and that we cannot know how to properly worship God if we do not know what he tells us to do in his word. Final thing to note about the proper approach to God's word is what we read in verse 5. And that verse says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Now, we did that here this morning. We try to do that on most Sundays as a church. We stand for the reading of God's word. Hopefully, we don't do that just out of ritual, but really as a sign of reverence and respect that God is speaking now. Something different is taking place. Now, sometimes people who will look at us and say, you know, look at those who kind of advocate for the centrality of the Bible, the importance of the Bible in our individual lives and in our corporate gatherings, they'll say, they kind of accuse us of sort of bibliolatry, you know, that we make the Bible into an idol. So you'll hear things like, you know, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And I understand the sentiment behind that. We don't worship a book, but its author But I think the reality in our day is that the tendency is to make too little of the Bible, not to make too much of it. And on top of that, it might just be worth reminding ourselves that God's word is a source not just of instruction, but of great delight. We take joy in it. Here's how the psalmist said it. 
He said, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So what does he lift his hands to? To God's commandments. Much like the people here. When Ezra reads, they say, amen, amen, and they worship. Or in Psalm 56, it says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? How does he know not to be afraid? How does he know that flesh cannot do anything to him apart from God's providence? Well, he knows it from reading God's word. Commenting on this distinction that some people try to make between God and his word, Matt Smethurst said this. He said, if I started yawning every time my wife talks... It wouldn't satisfy her to hear, oh, sweetie, I don't care much about your words. I just care about you. I mean, just try that at home. See how it works out. Delighting ourselves in God's word. Delighting ourselves in God means delighting ourselves in his word. We approach it with reverence and expectancy. Speak to me. Third thing we learn about here is the proper way to respond to God's word. So as he opened the book of the law, began to read it, the people stood. And then verse 6 says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the way they responded. Verse 7 then gives us a description or the names of those who helped or assisted Ezra in the reading and the teaching of God's word. Verse 8 then describes their activity. It says they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And then verse 9 says this, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Well, maybe it's because, you know, they were in exile for so long. They haven't heard the word read like this in a public setting. And this is a a weeping of joy, tears of joy. I mean, that could be part of it. But I suspect the reason they wept when they heard the words of the law read It's because they immediately became aware of all the ways they had broken it. This passage goes on to describe the way that Ezra instructed the people in joy. But what we need to know is that so often the word will wound us before it will comfort us and heal us. Because it brings us face to face with our sin. One of my very first experiences with the power of God's word in this regard came in one of my early preaching experiences before I was officially a pastor. I was invited to come and speak at a church in Whistler. I was assigned a text in Joshua chapter 7, specifically the portion that recounts the story of Achan's sin. Now, if you know that story, it's a story about Achan who, on a raid against the city of Ai took some of the devoted things that he was not supposed to touch and stole them and then hid them in his tent. 
Joshua was leading Israel at that time, and when he learned that these things had been stolen, he didn't know who had stolen them, and so he embarked on an investigation of sorts. And he brought out all the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, one by one, until he narrowed it down to the tribe of Judah. When he got to the tribe of Judah, he went through it, he narrowed it down by its clans, and then he eventually came to the family of Achan. And then as he went through the family of Achan, he eventually narrowed it down and hit the bullseye with Achan himself. He was the guilty party. Now, I doubt that it was a very good message I preached that day. But I remember making the point that there is a difference between confessing our sins and getting caught in our sins or having those sins exposed or revealed. Next day, I got a phone call from a man who had been in that service. And he said to me that as I preached on that passage in Joshua chapter 7, the Lord spoke a very clear word to him as he listened to the way Achan refused to confess his sin and acknowledge it, but tried to hide it. This man had been having an affair on his wife. He knew he needed to end it and confess it, and it was the reading and the preaching of God's word that penetrated his heart. Now look, it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through his word, which is what he does. This is how God communicates with us. Now, I'm not saying the Spirit couldn't convict him in another way. I'm just saying that in this case, what finally got through to him was the word of God as it was read and taught. Now, I suspect that on a week-to-week basis, your experiences are going to be far less dramatic than that, but this is the kind of effect God's word has on us when we listen to it attentively, when we allow it to do its work. The writer of Hebrews describes the Bible like this. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, God's word has the ability to lay everything bare. Now, most of us have spent lots of time on Zoom or Microsoft Teams this past year and a half. And one of the things that becomes evident when you start to do that is just how bad you look on screen, right? I mean, this is why you kind of stack the computer up on a pile of books to get a better angle or change the lighting. I actually just learned that there is a feature on Zoom whereby you can enhance your appearance digitally. I don't know what that looks like. I probably couldn't find it if I tried. But isn't this something we all do? And not just with our physical appearance, but isn't this something we do in life? We want to make ourselves look better than we are. We want people to perceive us in a certain way. I mean, this is what so much of the virtue signaling is about. Oh, look at me. I'm such a good guy. But when we stand before Scripture, it's like standing before a cosmic mirror that reveals all of our imperfections, all of the ways we fall short. And if we open our hearts to it, we will find ourselves in the same place as the Israelites in this passage, bowed with our faces to the ground, 
weeping for how we have broken God's law. So the Bible exposes us. It exposes our sin. But the Bible doesn't leave us there. The second half of verse 9 and the rest of the passage goes on to say this. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What a great picture. And we could make the observation from this that following the commands of God leads us to joy. And it does, that would be true. And in fact, if we were to keep reading in Nehemiah chapter 8, this is exactly what we we would see. We'd see a demonstration of it. So verses 13 to 17 go on to say this. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. Right. So they've come back for more teaching on the second day. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and with their and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square and at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. So here's what's happened. They come back on the second day. They listen to Ezra and the others teaching the word of God. And as they hear it being read, they become aware. This feast or festival, the feast of booths, we've never done that been in exile for 70 years. We don't even know anything about this. So they hear about it and they're like, look, we have to do this. God's commanded us to do it. Let's do it. They go out, they collect all these branches. You you can only imagine what the neighbors were thinking, right? I mean, you've just come back from your time in exile. You've just started to rebuild your houses. Now you're going to get a bunch of sticks and branches and make a little makeshift shelter on your roof and live in it for seven days. Are you crazy? So why did they do it? They did it because they were commanded to do it. And what did it lead to? It led to great rejoicing. When we follow what God tells us to do, it leads to joy. But there's actually something even more important than that in this passage. So the people hear the law being read. They start weeping, faces to the ground. Ezra and the others say, look, get up. Eat fat portions, drink sweet wine, rejoice in the Lord. See, the Bible doesn't leave us in our grief. Listen again to verse 12. What it says is, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing. And why? Because they had understood the words that were declared 
to them. Because they understood the words that had been declared to them. They believed it. So let me ask you this question. What is your response when you hear verses like these verses from 1 John? Where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the bad news. And then verse 9 says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Shouldn't our response be exactly the same? Right? We acknowledge our sin before God. But when we hear his word of assurance and forgiveness, we move on to great rejoicing. So Nehemiah chapter 8 teaches us about the unifying power of God's word. It teaches us about the proper approach to God's word, the proper response to God's word. But if we really pay attention to this passage, we will see that it helps us better understand the shape of the gospel. We hear the word of God. And as we hear the word of God, we come face to face with ourselves, that we fall short of what God has commanded us to do. We confess our sins to God. He forgives us, commissions us, sends us out with joy. And in fact, what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8 is in a sense a picture of what happens in the church week by week. We come expectantly. God's going to speak to us. We listen attentively. We reflect honestly. And we depart joyfully. So Crossridge, as a church, as we think about worship, what is the purpose of our gatherings together? This is it. It's a big part of it. We come together like this. And when we hear the word of assurance from God, we go on our way rejoicing in the good news of the new life that he has given us. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it instructs us in all things, in the way we live, in the way we worship, in the way we gather. And Lord, we thank you for the good news that it brings us. It it tells us the truth about ourselves, but also reminds us that in you there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is change that is possible. And so, Lord, we pray we would honor your word, not just when we're here on Sundays, but as we go from this place, we would go in the knowledge of your grace that's been shed upon us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.